Well, hello, John and Todd. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I've been on the road. Uh, John and I were able to knock off a podcast while I was uh, working very hard down in a, in a place that I know a lot of people would hate to be, and that was the Bahamas. Um, <laughs> of course, as, it, as, it, I'm, it, as I'm springing the violin. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know what? This job takes you to some of the worst places in the world. And some of us have to make sacrifices. And I took one for the team and ended up in the Freeport Bahamas working an accident. So I'm glad that, you know, I can promote aviation safety in the worst places in the world. So, right. And while you guys were where Boston suffering with what? 80s, 90s, some humidity, you know, uh, Todd. Who knows where you were? I mean, you were, prob- you were probably tromping around and where? Well, you this know? week, Boston. Next week, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad that uh, both of you are with us today. It's uh, it's always good to see you both. And uh, I'm getting ready for another trip. I'm heading off to Alaska. So I've gone from one extreme and now going to another extreme, getting ready for that trip. And John and I, and hopefully Todd, We'll be uh, we'll be doing a uh, another podcast while I'm up in Alaska. Again, it's a tough duty. Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. I've got to go up there. I'm working an accident, you know, and it just so happens that I'm going to a place where people pay a lot of money to go. So, and I'm being paid to be there. But uh, um, I'm always glad to see you guys, and uh, of course, I'm always happy to uh, to do another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I've run into a lot of people recently. Uh, I was on the airplane coming home the other day, and of course, uh, my seatmate, a woman who was traveling with her family, um, just happened to recognize the fact that I spent some time on TV, um, and she's a uh, fearful flyer, but uh, we got into a very good conversation. I told her about the show because I told her that uh, we talk about issues like that, and her father just happened to be... Uh, an engineer, uh, an aeronautical engineer in Russia. So we got into that conversation. So she's uh, very familiar with at least some aspects of aviation. And uh, so we've now got a new listener and hopefully a new viewer since we're doing this, of course, uh, on YouTube. So um, again, it's that fear. And it was interesting because it was that fear of the unknown. We got talking about a variety of things, including the 737 MAX, and she asked me, of course, if it was safe because she was going to be on a MAX, and we just happened to be on a MAX. And uh, and I walked her through everything that uh, we've been talking about with that aircraft and with Boeing and some of the issues. And she said she felt a lot better because that was information she really didn't understand. So again, that's what this show is all about. We try to tell the backstories. We try to give that information that you're not going to see an official report. Um, we don't sugarcoat it. We don't try and interpret it for the sexy story. It's really about giving people an understanding of the facts, conditions, and circumstances. So Hopefully we, uh, we're making an impact, and uh, I know that today's show, with what we're going to be talking about, I think will, again, be educational. Um, I've, again, ran into a number of, of pilots that have been listening to the show. They actually like the dissection of the accidents that we've been doing, but they also like 
the subjects that we've been talking about and the guests that we've had because they like to hear what's going on in the industry. They like to get our perspective and uh, they've been learning things that they really didn't understand just by reading the media about certain subjects, rule changes, regulations, things like that. So, um, you know, I think we're hitting the mark and we always appreciate our listeners and our now viewers. So you can always contact us at our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We appreciate that. That's how we try to focus the, uh, the issues that we talk about on the show. So keep that coming. And since I started the show rambling and shooting off my mouth, gentlemen, I will turn it over to you, John, so you can get us into what we're going to talk about today after you thank our sponsors. Yes. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody uh, that this show is brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, uh, and they can be reached at pama.org, and also by Avemco Insurance. Now, Avemco provides insurance for general aviation operators and flight instructors and renters. You know, Avemco has been around since 1961, which means they're around 61 years as well. So it's a little numbers game there. And uh, they're good people to deal with. If you talk, you talk to them, you, talk, you feel like you're talking to your buddies in the hangar because they are aviation people. They do fly, many of them. And uh, in fact, my, uh, my special assistant that, uh, that I had in Washington in my office uh, worked for Vemco many years ago. So they are aviation people embedded in the aviation community, full of knowledge, will help you on any issue, even if they're not insuring you and answer your questions, just overall good people. Although I call their judgment into question sometimes because they ensure my <laughs> co-host on this program. So I don't know about that. See, I've, I've been trying to be nice, John, and you just started it all over again. Uh, I, I got to get my licks in because once yeah, you well, the microphone. This, this show is real early right now, and I guarantee mm -hmm. before the end of this show, I might have to jab you a little bit. Oh, I know. I expect it. <laughs> I expect it. That's why I take my shots whenever I can. And, and Todd just sits back there and he doesn't get any. But I got a couple I can give him at the appropriate time. Oh, yeah. Well, he's not immune. If he's on the show, he's going to get jabbed. Yep. Well, we go back a long way, Todd and I, at least uh, 30 years. So. Oh, my God. If you think about it. Have you thought about it? I, thought, I was thinking about that recently. Long time. I didn't know we were that young. <laughs> yeah 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 you go that's all you're gonna admit to but as i've always said you know john is about as old as dirt so if you've known each other 30 years i think you probably have to add some uh, time to that yeah he's up there he's up there well he, gentlemen, he graduated from one of those name brand schools that has three names but when he went it only had two am i <laughs> Lovely little yeah. place. Anyway, Craig, we've had another interesting week with accidents. We have, John. I, I've been uh, watching it because I made a statement in one of our recent shows that I was concerned about the numbers of crashes that we're seeing lately. And uh, it, it does appear that it's on a very rapid rate. You know, yeah. sometimes you have these spikes and they don't just 
don't sustain themselves for any length of time. So we got to wait and see. But boy, there's been a rash of activity with with on the ground and in, in, uh, in-flight accidents and a lot of fatals that, that uh, I don't like to see. And now, I, I agree. And, and we've been touching on this loss of control. Um, I know that we mentioned a couple of accidents where they were training accidents with flight instructors and students. And yet again, we've had another training event with a 66-year-old flight instructor and an 18-year-old student. She had just graduated from high school. She was going on a full ride to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, where you and I have spent a lot of time in the recent past interviewing professors and students down there, talking about the education, the piloting, and the, the maintenance education that these students are getting down there. And this young lady had her you know, whole future ahead of her, and unfortunately, she died on the first flight, her first training flight. Uh, having graduated from from high school, and it's a very tragic circumstance. But the the real question is, again, we have a training accident. We have a flight instructor with a student in a Cessna 150 who ends up getting into a loss of control scenario. What were they doing? Why weren't they able to recover? Was it because altitude was too low? Did they get themselves into a situation that uh, flight control inputs just weren't going to be sufficient based on the altitude that they were trying to do a maneuver? Did they have a mechanical malfunction or failure? Was there some level of incapacitation? This flight instructor was in fact 66 years old. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, yes, there was a level of incapacitation or any kind of incapacitation. But as we know, uh, as we age, we're seeing a number of medical events both in the commercial side of the house, as well as in the general aviation side of the house. So the investigators are going to have their work cut out for them. But again, here's another loss of control in a training scenario. And I know that uh, you you were telling me, John, uh, there was a, I believe, well, Cessna 182 with an engine fire on the ground or something to that effect? Yes, it was during engine start, he had, had a fire. So assuming it was carbureted engine, he may have flooded the the airplane and spilled gas on the ground and 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 then it ignited you know the, the facts are not clear yet from what's out there and but we know that not just uncommon from, to have an engine fire yeah and we know that just from our training that if you suspect you've got a fire in there you're supposed to be you know continue to crank to try and suck that fire into the engine um, a lot of people will stop and of course you know if the engine uh, does catch fire because of fuel and, and that kind of thing you don't want to stay in the airplane and, you know, <laughs> watch it burn, trying to uh, trying to suck the fire in by cranking. So uh, the wise thing to do is get out. And then, of course, we have another serious event with a parachute deployment. But this one's kind of unique, John. And, and I think you both I know that Todd is has uh, also probably read this where this was kind of a unique scenario right after takeoff. There happened to be a parachute deployment. But the facts are still yet to be borne out as to whether this was an unintentional deployment or an intentional deployment of the parachute at a low altitude. Unfortunately, uh, it ended up being a, uh, a fatal accident. Well, it, deploying a parachute that close to the ground doesn't really give you any benefit. In fact, it's more negative with the additional drag. 
So it's, it's yet to be seen. And, and don't rule out the case of mechanical failure as well. Yeah. You know, so it, it would become part of that unintentional deployment, but it could be for mechanical reasons. You have to, someone's going to have to go back in the records and see if, if anybody had been in there working on that uh, system yep. in the recent past. So another one where the investigators are going to have to have to do a, uh, their job to, to ferret out the facts. And I hope that they do their job with uh, a lot of due diligence because, you know, uh, you've heard me chime in over and over and over again of my dissatisfaction with uh, some of the investigations being performed by the General Aviation Division of the NTSB. Yep. And it's, it's not, you know, maybe I said that wrong because it's really not the people in that division that are doing it, but it's the management of the NTSB that are, that are not giving them the resources or the focus to do a very thorough job. Yeah. I know that was always a battle as a board member. I pushed on that uh, constantly and I would be appeased if I complained about an accident, they would put additional uh, resources on it. Uh, but then when I wasn't looking, the next whole bunch of them would go back to the way that they've always done things. Yeah. So it yeah. is a, a question of resources, which they should have a tremendous amount of monetary resources right now because they, we've gone through a 10 year period with really no major accidents. Yep. So that the the, uh, the coffees uh, should be pretty full this year. Yep. There is no excuse right now for them not to focus more time and attention, um, given the fact that, again, you and I had this discussion and I'm still waiting to see what's come out of it. And that is that general aviation uh, steering group that uh, was put together. They've been working on loss of control for years. And I still, I, I, I want to see what's coming out of that. What progress have they made? What tools are they pumping back into the industry to mitigate or eliminate loss of control accidents? It's obvious that somebody's not getting the message because we've had a number of these loss of control accidents in the recent past. And again, what is coming out of all of this, quote, time and energy? And, and the board has an opportunity now to really delve into these issues. They don't have to look at and wait for a new accident to happen. We've got a whole potload of, of old accidents that you can start looking back at and looking at systemic trails. That is, what is common? What's the common denominator between these accidents? That's what accident investigation is all about. It's not looking at each of these accidents in isolation and then trying to glue them together. You're looking for trends. You're looking for systemic problems and then trying to come up with a solution for those systemic problems. And, and I still, uh, I mean, what's come out? What is being done by the NTSB and the FAA to enhance aviation safety? I sure don't see it right now with, uh, with loss of control. Well, I, I'd like to add something here as a person who has never, unlike you two gentlemen who've worked directly within the NTSB, I've been an outsider working closely with the NTSB, both when I was at, in industry at Boeing and elsewhere. And this is part of the ongoing process that the industry goes through. The NTSB is a phenomenal organization, has given the aviation community around the world fantastic resources to improve safety. But what you're seeing here, this interchange you see going on right now, it's part of the constant vigilance that the industry has with the NTSB. It's a great organization. 
It can do great things. It can always do better. And this is an example of that. It's the data. I believe it's the data. And we're not collecting enough data uh, of the right kind during these initial accidents because we have one investigator there trying to collect all that information. Most people don't realize how much of the information in accident scenes is perishable. You get it, you gotta be there when it's fresh. A week later, it has changed. You know, and a week later, a lot of people might be, you know, even police or firemen or, or other people, when you try to keep everybody out, they've gotten in there and things have been disturbed. You know, we have a natural group of, dis of, of disturbances in the rescue process. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that come in that, that can impact on the data. But if you don't have a good package of facts to analyze, then you're not going to have a good result. And, and that's, that's why I'm concerned about the accidents that occurred in 2020. That was the COVID year and the board didn't go out and there are over 400 accidents behind. And I want to see how much detail those accidents are really going to have and where those probable cause determinations are really going to go. Because I know for a fact that accidents that I collected data on that happened in 2020, the board doesn't have what I have. And it's going to be real interesting to see what they come up with. You know, I think that they probably should have a new category, which is new to them because they never want to admit it. But an I don't know, because they're not going to have the data to make a, a good determination. So, yeah, but but again, John, that's a shortcoming on them. They had all the opportunity in the world to go out there and using COVID as an excuse is no excuse. That's true. That's true. Especially since they sent the FAA out. Yeah. And uh, no, by the way, if I can go out, if right. I can go out and do it safely for clients, why couldn't they? Right. Or two government agencies. It's okay yeah. for one to go and not the other. Yeah. Give me a break. I mean, it, yeah, I, I agree. Calls it calls into question the management of the organization. That's all. Maybe yeah. there's good reasons, but they haven't articulated them. And speaking of the government, um, one of the things that, of course, uh, has come out in the recent past is a report about what we have commonly referred to as UFO sightings by a variety of people, whether they are commercial pilots, military pilots, just people on the ground, bystanders. Um, one of the, uh, the big questions now is, what is the government doing to investigate these events, especially when you have what I consider credible witnesses, that is commercial airline pilots and military pilots who are observing what they believe are UFOs and, um, and these sightings that, uh, that are occurring all over the country at various times, day and night. And, uh, and one of the things that I know that you've been studying, Todd, is this particular uh, issue and I, I find it quite interesting now that the government has tagged a new name to it, which we'll talk about here in a second, but it's UAP, which is an unidentified aerial phenomenon rather than an unidentified flying object or something that delineates this, you know, this thing in the air versus a phenomenon which could encompass a variety of atmospheric conditions and act of God and things like that. And most oh, importantly, uh, the, the U part of it, unidentified. 
Um, we'll get to this later, but uh, there have been numerous reports over the years. And in recent times, there have been even pronouncements by the government admitting that, yes, some of these things that have been found and identified by U.S. government systems, uh, the things that have been released to the public, those are real videos. And we, the government, don't know what they are. And before we get too much into that, I'd like to talk about what's going to be coming up uh, fairly soon. In the news, basically since about 2017, where there was this very major article that was published in the New York Times talking about uh, UAPs in general, there has been a flurry of media reports over the last couple or so years about this. And late last year, uh, there was a law that was actually passed by the Congress that mandated that the U.S. government, specifically uh, department, uh, part of the Navy, in concert with the intelligence communities, would release some sort of report to the public within 180 days. And that 180 days uh, is ending on the 25th of June, which is this, uh, the last Friday of June. But uh, all those multiple news reports, and again, many of you have probably seen this either on your basic cable channels or on news channels, uh, three of them involve U.S. Navy aircraft, uh, both on, I believe, the East Coast and the West Coast. And all three of them depicted something that the pilots at the time really couldn't identify. Reportedly, this hasn't been confirmed, reportedly systems on Navy ships nearby also couldn't identify them. And these were things that in many cases were seen by multiple crews on multiple aircraft. And there, there were videos of them. And here's a still of three of these videos. Uh, one of them is commonly referred to as the FLIR video, another one is the gimbal video, and a third is the GoFast video. Uh, these were not the full up videos from the US government. That is, these were not the highest quality videos. They were somehow over the past 13 years or so released, leaked out by whomever. But the uh, military never denied, uh, fully denied them. And it wasn't until April of this year that they, the US Department of Defense came out and said, yes, these three videos are real. They are authentic, and we don't know what's in them. You know, one of the things that concerns me, you know, with these videos, and I know that a lot of that. Uh, a lot of folks have tried to explain this away or think that it's some sort of figment of one's imagination and things like that. But when we talk about flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders and even a video recorder, but primarily a CVR and FDR, those are electronic witnesses. Those two boxes are recording artifacts of things that have actually happened. You're not manipulating the data to change it. It's just recording what the airplane is doing and what pilots are saying or somebody in the cockpit is saying, and it's recording it as an artifact. And when you look at this kind of video, yes, I know that videos can be manipulated and you can do all sorts of stuff. We've seen that all over the internet. But when you have a credible source, especially the military as a credible source, where there is no reason to manipulate this data, this video data, then you have to look at this as being valid electronic witness information that really should be investigated. Because I know that, and we're gonna talk about this in a little bit, but this kind of thing, whether it's a military aircraft or a civilian aircraft, does pose a threat and, and creates a, a safety of flight issue. Because if someone tries to take evasive action because they think they see something out there or they, they believe absolutely that they see something out there and they take 
um, you know, corrective action or, you know, extreme evasive action, they could set themselves up for an accident or serious incident because they don't know what it is and they're trying to, to evade it. Yeah, and also they run into other airplanes in the area too, you know, that, that may not have seen the same thing. So it, it is quite interesting. I've long believed that there was more to it than just a weather phenomenon like the government had claimed all along because there's too many credible people. You know, people like Todd who wander around the Mojave Desert looking for the <laughs> UFOs. <laughs> and I'm laughing, setting him up. But I actually, I actually was riding uh, with a bunch of guys, dirt bikes out in Mojave Desert. I used to do a lot of that. And uh, we came across a guy in the camp was sitting out there and he was waiting and looking for the UFOs and yeah. we all laughed at him, but it really, uh, and, and essentially that's the problem today is that we laughed at him and, and many in our society laugh at people that, that would see these things and, and uh, criticize them, say, oh, you're crazy or, or something even stronger. When in fact, that, that's a negative. We ought to be taking these reports and gathering them all and encouraging people to uh, give us these reports because maybe there's a trend in there. Maybe there's a location trend or an altitude trend or some kind of a trend in there that could help us identify these uh, in the future. And I know yeah. Todd, you, were, you were talking about this earlier about the trends and you have a couple of good specific ideas about, about the trend uh, and what to do about it. Before we well, go on, know, I like uh, to admit publicly for the first time that yes, indeed, on several occasions, I personally saw spaceships land in the Mojave Desert. Yes, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. I was there and I had witnesses with me. Okay, I was a flight test engineer in the Air Force. This was the mid 1980s and the space shuttle program regularly landed at Edwards Air Force Base. And the first couple of times it happened, we would actually stop meetings and go out and watch. After a while, it got to be a point where we're in the meeting, boom, boom, we hear the sonic boom, it's like, ah, spaceship's landing, back to the meeting. Now, fortunately, unfortunately, it stopped being routine, and I hope that space travel, by conventional means, becomes routine in the future. But let's get back to the subject at hand. But when you think about things like that, Todd, you know, I, I read a recent report by, uh, by a former um, uh, astronaut that uh, had been at the space station, um, you know, poo-pooing this and, and basically saying that if we think that there's intelligent life beyond the um, the earth, that we're all idiots. Well, if that's the case, then why is the government blasting, you know, signals, that is radio signals into deep space, hoping for a response, if they all think that this is just stupid? Why are we wasting our time doing things like that? Um, and then, of course, you know, even as a kid, when you look up in the stars at night, and you, you just think to yourself, are we the only thing that's alive in not only our universe, but other universes. You mean to tell me that there is no other form of life, mechanical or otherwise, that ex that does, I mean, it not there something that exists beyond the earth? I can't imagine that, you know, we are the only living thing or functioning thing. And, um, and so, you know, you got to keep an open mind because uh, there is got to be something to it. Yes, some of this could be atmospheric, but 
when you have video like this, where you have something that's moving in a variety of different directions, up, down, goes underwater, and, and a variety of other things, uh, how do you explain that? Because that's not an atmospheric phenomenon. And this right. is something that's been of uh, concern to the U.S. government literally for decades. And this wasn't part of our show, but uh, last night I happened to run across a video I've seen several times. It was of an Air Force uh, Lieutenant General, Major General rather, back in the 1950s, giving a public press conference where essentially about UAPs, saying pretty much what's being said right now. A, we the military have seen these. B, we don't know what they are. And here's the key point back then and perhaps even now. We don't think that this represents a, a security threat to the United States. So back in the 1950s, at least, and maybe again with this upcoming report, they'll admit that, yes, we've been seeing these. We've been seeing these for a long time and trying to understand them, still haven't come to grips with it. Now, the report that's coming out this week is going to be published by a particular task force run by the Navy. There had been other groups within the Department of Defense beforehand. And again, some of the recent media reports from the past few months as I repeatedly mentioned this gentleman named Luis Elizondo, who headed a prior incarnation of this. And he's a legitimate person. And what he said, I have no doubt that what he's saying is true. Coming up this week, one would hope, that is the end of June 2021, there will be a report. The early leaks out of the government and by various news sources is that there are about 120 events that are being talked about in this report and that the report comes to no solid con conclusion as to what they are. As John was saying earlier, in the context of NTSB maybe having a new category of I don't know, this is a legitimate category for UAPs. If they're unidentified and you can't explain them, how is it helping us if the government says we don't know versus not saying anything at all? I'd rather them do their job and come to a conclusion, even if it's inconclusive, than to sort of shuffle it under the rug and pretend it never happened. Yeah. Now, again, the uh, report that's coming up focuses on US military and national security organizations, but there have been very uh, prominent events in the past involving the civil aviation uh, community. And one in particular that dates back to 1986. It happened in Alaska. There was a Japan Airlines a cargo aircraft where the entire crew saw several objects that couldn't be explained. There were FAA radars that picked up things that couldn't be explained as airliners, et cetera. There was, after a whole lot of fighting, a lot of reports released through Freedom of Information Act and others, including former FAA officials who said, yes, very much so. This happened on that night. A bunch of us were trying to figure out what was going on. It was seen visually by the pilots, seen by radar. And allegedly, the military was also involved, although there was nothing released from the military about the Air Force's involvement in tracking this. And this has been a mystery to this day. And I believe, John, you might have uh, spoken directly with that particular FAA official on several occasions. I have. I have. This is uh, an interesting subject. I hope you're right, Todd, about the 180 days and them releasing the report, because we have seen uh, these kind of deadlines given to the FAA historically over many, many, many years, giving them 180 days, a year to, to produce something. And they oftentimes... Uh, fail to respond within the time limit of the law. And uh, so I, I'm hoping that the, that the Navy is a little more diligent in responding to Congress's wishes than some, I'm, I'm some somewhat of the hopeful. 
I'm somewhat hopeful in part because in the last few weeks, there have been a classified series of briefings given to members of Congress about this same report. And so it's uh, at least that part of it has been released. And some other things outside of the FAA and the DOD, which totally surprised me, the administrator of NASA, who I believe was a former Senator Nelson, if I'm not correct, right. came out and basically said that, uh, in, in essence, that UF, the UAPs are something that's uh, legitimate. And it wasn't much of a statement, but it was astounding to me because I had never seen NASA come anywhere close to publicly admitting that UAPs or anything like them were something that were a concern or something that involved NASA. Yeah, but a lot of this discussion, a lot of this belief, <laughs> I mean, people still talk about Area 51 today. There's more <laughs> TV shows and cable shows about the mysteries of Area 51 and aliens and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, some of which, okay, yeah, maybe contrived, some of which is subject to, to, of interpretation. But when you have credible witnesses with video and they say, I saw it, don't know what it was, watched it do all sorts of gyrations that are uncharacteristic of anything we've ever built, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Now, all of a sudden, you start calling into question their credibility. And these are, I mean, highly trained, um, you know, observers, i.e. military pilots. And when you look at a commercial pilot, why would they make it up? I mean, there's no reason to make it up. I mean, there's other ways to get your 15 minutes of fame. Um, and, and talking about something that doesn't exist that calls into question your credibility, I think is just a ridiculous argument. And then to have people blow them off as they didn't really see it. Um, again, I agree that these things should be investigated. And I'd rather have them say, these are the things that we did to try and identify what it was and where it went and things like that. And say, we just don't have either the technology or the, the resources to be able to actually validate these things, but we tried. And going back to those three Navy videos I briefly flashed earlier, these were events, again, those three events were, by, were seen with their own Mark I eyeballs by trained Navy pilots and Naval flight officers who the U.S. government spent millions of dollars training, some of whom had gone through the Top Gun School, all of whom are well-versed in what friendly and allied aircraft look like, what adversary aircraft look like, what kind of threats exist against the United States. They were flying off the coast of the US in the case of the three videos. And I'm sure they would have been cognizant of all kinds of other civil traffic, including drug traffickers and such. And all the various aircraft, UAVs, et cetera, none of this made sense to them. None of them could identify what was going on. And in every case they had not only the systems on the aircraft. They had systems outside of the aircraft, either from other aircraft or from ships, to back them up. So again, uh, it's mysterious to me. It's unknown to the government. And I'm just not believing anyone who's saying, well, these pilots might have been mistaken. Let's assume that's true. Were the pilots mistaken? Were the radar and video on board the aircraft mistaken? Were the radar and other information on the ships mistaken? Or the billions and billions of dollars spent over decades to have the greatest air defense system in naval aviation history? Was that a waste of money? I seriously doubt it. Now let's uh, steer back a little bit toward the civil side of things. And one of the things that uh, 
you know, maybe you, you two gentlemen could, uh, um, you know, go against me on this one. I could not find in all the records I could look through, all the things I've done over the years, any demonstrated direct threat to civil aviation. I could not find a serious substantial damage or loss of aircraft or fatal event or serious event, serious injury event involving, in essence, an unknown or unidentifiable type of phenomena. Of course, there have been things, for, for example, going through volcanic ash, which is an identified phenomenon. Uh, planes that have crashed because of lightning strikes, again, a rare phenomenon, but very understood. But a truly unknown, unidentifiable thing, I don't know of any. How about you two gentlemen? I've I, know never... one, I know of one, but it was uh, it was in the off, off uh, south of Pensacola, and we lost a small airplane at night. And uh, after we uh, after some pressure to recover the airplane, it was recovered, and it had some paint marks on it that were clearly unidentifiable. Uh, even sending it out to to people to deal with paint. Uh, the paint was not identifiable. And we long believed it was a military drone that was flying around at night secret, secretly that ended up colliding with this little airplane. But of course, the, the contractors for the military uh, it said they never lost a vehicle. So maybe they didn't lose a vehicle. Maybe the, the, the vehicle caused enough damage to the, I think it was a Cessna by memory, uh, that was impacted. So it, it's an unknown. And, uh, but the physical evidence of the paint sort of makes it, lends itself towards it being a man-made object that caused it, even though the, you know, cause there's a lot of, of coating materials in the commercial worlds we're totally unfamiliar with because the military radar absorbing and, and all sorts of other things that we, we don't know about. And based on and based on what we've all been talking about, um, and and what bullet points you have up right now, you know there is no formal reporting, and the only reports that we do have typically come from either airline pilots or these military pilots. Who knows how many general aviation pilots have seen something? And one because we don't have a formal reporting process, have no way or at least know of no way of reporting something like this and to figure that if they do report something like this, people are going to start questioning their sanity. And, um, and so who knows, there could be thousands of sightings that have never gone reported that with detail may help um, the investigative process um, in looking for these trends and that kind of thing. But um, without any, credible way to report these events, uh, you know, there's probably a lot that have gone unreported. And that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about in this portion of the podcast, that there is actually a system in place, government run, that has been used for decades for reporting safety-related things, which have also been used, turns out, by some pilots and others to report UAP activity. But the Aviation Safety Reporting System is what I'm referring to, ASRS for short. It is managed by NASA on behalf of the FAA, and it's there for safety reasons primarily. One of the benefits of it is that it is a confidential reporting system, and the FAA allows people who have made, let's say, unintentional violations, altitude, et cetera, to report their violations through ASRS. 
FAA, if the only way they find out about this is through ASRS, they're not going to be sanctioned. They're not going to be fined, won't have their tickets pulled, etc. Again, it's not for deliberate actions and people actually doing criminal things. But if you accidentally do an altitude bust, here's a way to go. And they, uh, they in, encourage you, rather, they, they insist that you give full identifying information about yourself, flight, etc. However, they de-identify that information and put it into a public database. So it does several good things. One, it reports safety-related events would otherwise not be reported. Two, it gives the FAA and NASA and other parts of the aviation system a chance to identify problems before they hurt somebody. Three, the information is shared with the public. So everyone, especially in the aviation community, can learn from this. And although it's designed for aviation professionals, let's say an air traffic controller, a mechanic, or a pilot in the course of their duties seeing something, anyone could submit uh, one of these. And it has been used, as it turns out, for UAP reporting. And some of these news articles I talked about in the last several months mentioned this. And they came across, or I came across uh, one of them that I'll talk about in a minute. But as I said before, not used for enforcement actions in most cases. Uh, the kind of identifying information they remove, they remove even the day that it occurred. For example, you'll know the year and the month, but not the day. Airline removed, pilot's name removed. Uh, time of the event, if it's identifying, it can identify a specific flight that's removed. And NASA says that over the course of the decades they've had this, they've had over a million inputs to the system. Never once has a person who submitted it had their information released to the public. So no data breaches that has a pilot's or a mechanic's name out there in the public to be ridiculed and such. And their focus is, as you can imagine, a fairly straightforward focus. Chain of events and the human performance considerations. They want to know what happened. They don't want your interpretation of what it was. They just want you to report what has been going on. I'd like to highlight one particular case, uh, which is the uh, under the ASRS system has the ACN number ACN1119876 from September of 2013. It had several elements of it that I found very interesting. And this was, I would assume, a, a non-airline aircraft it was flying at 3,500. And the uh, co-pilot saw something almost hit the aircraft. In this case, the airplane did not do an evasive maneuver. Whatever was coming at them did an evasive maneuver dived under them. The person described this as being shaped like a flat black bar. Now, I've been around aviation for a while, so have you two gentlemen. Do you know of anything that exhibits controlled flying characteristics that shape like a flat black bar? Yeah, two by four. <laughs> <laughs> you get a two by four going fast enough, it'll fly, Todd. Trust me. Well, no two by four I've been familiar with, which are made out of wood. <laughs> would cause the following to happen if you threw it really fast past an airplane yeah. flying at 3,500 feet uh, MSL, I might add. The fluid compass began to malfunction. Air traffic control calls them up and say, hey, you know, we're reading from your transponder that you're at uh, 2,400 feet. And they report back, no, we're at 3,500 feet. Both their GPS and their, and their other uh, uh, altimeter instrument in there showed 3,500. For some reason, ATC was seeing 2,400. They even had the compass evaluated after the flight to see what was going on with it. Unfortunately, the report didn't include what the result was. 
But here's, I think, an outstanding example in that one, it was an unusual event. Two, there was clearly a safety issue here because you had a near-mid-air collision. Three, you had three possible sources of insights into this. The crew that was in the aircraft, air traffic control, and whoever was working on the, uh, um, the compass afterwards. By the way, in the report, they mentioned that they took it to an FAA certified station to do the uh, um, evaluation. And all three of those professions, the pilot, air traffic controller, and, and the mechanic, they can go to ASRS, fill out a form specific for that profession, and give their interpretation of what happened. And again, ASRS is looking at the chain of events and the human performance considerations. They're not looking for your evaluation of what it is. They didn't want you to submit pictures because this is a text-only situation. But this is a repository, potentially, that could be used. Now, two things here. Let's go beyond UAPs for a minute. If you're out there, you're in the aviation community, and you're unaware of ASRS, become aware of it. It's something that could be a useful tool in your work and in your career. If you are someone who has obviously seen something that you think is of a safety concern, but you're afraid to report it because the boss might fire you, people might laugh at you, you can do this on your own time and your own dime. And even though the government might come back and ask you some questions, they have promised and have delivered on their promise that you will not be identified and that your airline, the flight number, the origin and destination, if that can be used to identify that report and that flight, they won't put that in there. And they've been good about this for several decades. Now, we'll talk about ASRS in detail, but going forward to the report that's coming out uh, allegedly by the end of June, if you have a chance, read it. Come to your own conclusions. According to early reports, the government hasn't come to a conclusion. You're free to come to a conclusion or not come to a conclusion, but please read the report. It'll be freely available, not just to people in the United States, but to everyone around the world. And we'll yeah, try to get a and we'll try to get a link on our website so that people can uh, can go to that report. And for uh, uh, in between now and then, or even afterwards, go visit the SRS site, read up on it, look and see if it's something that you or your organization or your crew or anyone else could use either now or in the future. Encourage people around your organization if they have a safety issue to report it to the SRS. And again, having been in the aviation world from several perspectives, sometimes you see something, let's say you're working with a company and you want to complain to management, management's not listening. Well, this isn't an opportunity for you to have a management gripe and send it to ASRS. This is an opportunity to, if you see a real issue here that could affect the safety of flight now in the future, send the report in. And uh, the, the last bullet, I put that in there by mistake. This is, uh, I talked about the uh, compass thing earlier, but let's get back to ASRS and what you gentlemen think about it. Well, I, I think that if, if this is a valid repository, then people should make, uh, you know, valid or legitimate reports. Uh, again, the, the more data you have, the better it is for whoever chooses to investigate these events to understand whether or not there's a pattern here, there's a systemic issue, there's uh, definitely a safety of flight issue. Like I said, you may have somebody that sees something and believes they must take a base of action because they don't know what it is. 
and could put themselves in jeopardy, which leads to a loss of control event or something like that um, inadvertently. And I mean, while investigators try to put logic to, uh, you know, what they're investigating, if you have an airplane that's flying along and then just comes whistling out of the sky for no apparent reason, you have to start questioning what went on. Well, of course, we look at the, the normal things. We look at the abnormal things. We look at the mechanical things. And of course, we look at the physiological things with the pilot. And if some of those don't pan out or if all of those don't pan out, I mean, there's got to be something. And, and so while, yeah, it's not going to be <laughs> the standard answer for, well, when we can't answer all the other questions, we'll just call it, you know, it was an alien encounter or, and, you know, a UAP encounter. But I think that if data is collected, it may provide somebody with additional information that could shed light on whether or not these are atmospheric phenomenons or something else that, uh, that, yeah, right now we can't explain it, but maybe in the future we can. And if you do submit something with the expectation that they'll look into it, maybe they'll find that it's a conventional explanation. For example, here's my favorite I, I bring up all the time. There is a spaceship that I see on a regular basis that I could confuse for an airplane if I didn't know better. And that's the International Space Station. It's the largest orbiting object above Earth. And you can go on several websites and they'll tell you, hey, look up in the sky at this point, at this time of night, yeah. and you'll see it flying over. And the first time I saw it, what struck me is that it looked like the landing light of an airliner flying in the stratosphere. Yeah. If I didn't know it was a space station, I would have thought it was an airplane. Yep. And I've, I sit outside a lot at night sipping my favorite beverage pondering life. And fortunately where I am, um, it's quite dark. So I don't have a lot of light pollution. I see a lot of satellites coming over and you can tell a satellite versus an airplane. Cause you don't have position lights and the speed at which these, these dots are moving across the sky are pretty damn fast. And so it, you know, that it's a satellite, but I've also seen flashes in the sky and just doing the research a lot of times it's the repositioning of a satellite rotating and that kind of stuff, especially with solar panels where they glint just briefly, you get these flashes. And, and again, people, you know, everybody has seen them. I'm sure if they stare up at the sky at night, you'll see these little flashes. And, and so those are phenomenon that do exist, but what these, what we're really talking about, especially in these videos is something that, isn't just momentary. It isn't a blink of an eye. It's, it's there for some period of time to either be viewed or recorded. And, and that's the difference. Um, and I think that there is valuable information. And if um, not only pilots, but anybody else that, and I'm just wondering, Todd, if somebody's standing on the ground and sees something and watches it, observes it, tries to take pictures of it, where are they going to report it? Well, as I stated before, there's no real formal mechanism for doing so. There are some private informal mechanisms out there. There's been uh, one gentleman out in Washington State runs something called the National UFO Reporting Center. Anyone can send in a written synopsis of what they've seen and can submit pictures and whatnot to them. But he's just one individual. He's not official. Uh, there was another organization, which uh, let me get the name right. The uh, 
National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena, which is a private nonprofit, which over the years did some fairly detailed reports with a bunch of engineers and scientists who looked at data, including this one gentleman named Richard Haynes, who uh, used to be at NASA, who put out a lot of reports on it, which is very illuminating. But again, as good as these folks were, they're not an official repository. Uh, there is nowhere to go beyond whatever these private individuals or private groups could go. And I think I, do I have a, no, don't have a link to it. But um, again, if you see something and you take whatever action you can, there might be a case, and you just mentioned, what if there's no place to go? My only recommendation is document it as best you can and uh, submit it to I, what you think is the best place to go to. And beyond ASRS, I can't give you a recommend in a couple of those private organizations I mentioned, I can't give you a recommendation of what to do with it. Again, I would hope that whatever happens with this report, should they publish it, will be the start of a chain of events that might make it easier for people to report it to some place that will actually accept the information, do something useful with it. Now, in the meantime, your various cable channels, there's lots of entertaining things out there. Think of it as entertaining more than anything. Uh, myself, I've avoided every opportunity to be on shows like that, except for one, which was back in 2014. It was something on uh, Discovery Channel called UFOs and Airliners. And I said, no, 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 no. And they said, no, no, Todd, here are the three events we're going to look at, one of which was the Alaska event. It's like, okay, these three are legit. These three were reported by airliners, by airline pilots. This has data they can fall back on. All right, I'll comment on these. But beyond that, the speculation, the wild and woolly stuff, the you know, aliens ate my mother or whatever, I stay away from that. And I would recommend that you in the audience stay away from that as well. Yeah, well, I will confess that uh, John and I have had these discussions and being the investigator I am, when he tells me about the phenomenon he sees all the time out there, I have come to find out that it's after he's done a little bit of this <laughs> that his imagination starts running wild. So. John, you can't report these events. <laughs> yep. I knew it was coming back. <laughs> the one that is one that just happened in Dallas that really has me intrigued right over the airport. Did you see that one? No. Yeah, it's just real recent. Yeah. It, uh, the thing that got my interest in it, people on the ground, baggage handlers saw it. A number of airline employees saw it. Uh, they actually called the tower and the guy in the tower told him, he said, I wouldn't admit it, even if I did see it. Hold and on. I, I, Is this the 2006 Chicago event, or was there something else in Dallas this year? This is Dallas. And there's a picture floating around on the web that they said there was low ceilings in the place. And then finally, this thing was there for quite a while. A lot of people saw it. And then it took off vertically, and it made a donut hole in the clouds. Well, this, this sounds exactly like the Chicago event in 2006. Uh, I'm not going to say that you didn't, it didn't happen in Dallas, but this is like a textbook example of what happened in 2006, which is something I spoke about at length with a, a woman named Leslie Keene, who published a book in 2010 about UFO reports from official sources. Chicago, this was 2006. This was, I think it was uh, October or whatever, or November. Floating above, I remember the gate, gate C-17. Allegedly, uh, controllers in the ground saw it, ground staff saw it, pilots in airplanes that were taxiing around saw it. This is like five years after 9-11, 
and by the way, at least a decade before the modern era of UAVs and, and drones and such. So a private drone exhibiting that, uh, probably unlikely. But here's a more important thing. Chicago O'Hare is one of the most important pieces of aviation infrastructure, not only in the United States, but the world. This is a highly uh, sensitive location. Any kind of unauthorized flight should attract the attention of, at the very least, the FBI and the FAA. This was witnessed by several. There were cockpit, or rather, uh, audio tapes from the air traffic controllers that had been released to the public. So this very definitely happened. And the FAA basically said, you know, nothing to see here. Nothing was ever said of it. And allegedly, several of the airlines were telling their employees, don't talk about it. Now, I don't know what it was. I'm not going to pronounce that I know what it was. But if somebody says, several somebodies from different directions say, we saw something that exhibited behavior that was A, illegal. You shouldn't be flying around Gate C-17 at, at O'Hare. B, exhibited flight characteristics that are unlike any single conventional aircraft they can think of. It's worth investigating. That's all I'm saying. Yep. Well, I, uh, I, I think that there, there is something to be said for all of these things. And again, it boggles my mind to, to convince myself or believe that we are the only living organism, living thing in our universe or any other universes that are out there. So um, it, it is one of those things that, you know, goes beyond all human understanding possibly, but that's okay. Um, but it is something that I think should be continued as far as study and of, of course, data collection. So, and John, I know that you want to always report all of your phenomenon, but please do not overwhelm these people. I know you see a lot of things. I'm going to sit outside tonight and count the stars. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it's been an entertaining discussion. We'd love to hear from uh, you, our listeners and viewers, what you think. Um, what, what knowledge you have, what study you have, what you really believe, you can always uh, fire those off to us at our uh, email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We'd, uh, we'd definitely be entertained, I'm sure, by some of the comments, but uh, we'd like to know what you think of all of this. And again, uh, I, I just think that other people have seen things, general aviation pilots particularly, that probably have seen things. And, uh, and so uh, we definitely would be not only entertained, but we would be encouraged by seeing what, uh, what you have to say. So my friend, uh, I know that uh, we are, I'm back on the road again, and I think you're going to be back on the road and Todd's going to stay put because uh, we need to use him as our conduit to, uh, to outer space. Ah. So. <laughs> So uh, I know that uh, we're going to be taking the show on the road here uh, shortly, actually in July. You and I, uh, John, are going to be at AirVenture most of the week. I've got a variety of uh, things I'm going to be doing. I'm fortunate enough to be one of the judges on the Founders Innovation Awards. So we're going to be doing that at AirVenture. And then I usually host the General Aviation Awards, which is a a great award program recognizing uh, the flight instructor of the year, the mechanic of the year, and the fast team representative of the year. 
So I'll be, uh, be also doing that. And then I know you're going to be joining me because we're going to be hanging out at our sponsor's tent, which is a Bemco Insurance. And in fact, we are going to be doing a show live from there uh, on one of the days. We're not sure which one, but if you are all going to Air Venture this year, definitely stop by the Avemco tent uh, or uh, booth. I think they're a tent and, uh, and definitely stop in to say hello. John and I will be hovering around there. Love to meet you, talk to you. And then, of course, uh, when we do our show, we intend to have new friends of the show on the show. So uh, we're looking forward to interviewing folks and, uh, and talking aviation and aviation safety. So I think it'll be a, a great time. So if you are going to AirVenture, definitely look for the flight safety detectives. We will be hovering around there in some form or fashion. So with that, gentlemen, I want to say thank you. I think it's, uh, again, been an entertaining show. And hopefully, um, you know, opened up the eyes of, uh, of some of our listeners and viewers to uh, UAPs and, and what they are. So with that, John, I will leave you, as I always do, with our last words. Well, I will mention our two sponsors right off the bat, reminding everyone that the show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance who has been insuring the general aviation community for six decades. And they have a, a, newly pro, a new product in renter's insurance. I think they just updated the, that whole program for renter's insurance. And uh, so if you're looking to renew your policy, if you got an, an airplane, which there seems to be a lot of people buying airplanes today. Yeah, absolutely. New airplane. Uh, and need insurance, give them a call, get a quote. You know, I failed to mention earlier that uh, you get a 5% discount just for listening to this show. And they give discounts for being uh, all the safety things that you try to uh, participate in as well. So it's a good program. It's a good insurance company and, fun, and, and very knowledgeable and fun people to talk to on the phone about aviation. So Avemco, give them a call, 888 888- 879-0389 or avemco.com on the web. And as always, I'll remind everybody that this pandemic's not over. We have a new variant that seems to be rearing its ugly head. And uh, so please wash your hands. Wear a mask if you're in crowded places. Uh, just, just common sense items. Right, let's get this thing behind us so we can get back to normal and not have all these these cautions hanging over our head. And if you're going to go fly, please do a good job of pre-planning your flight. Think about what's going to happen if you have an engine failure on takeoff. Right, we've seen a few of those recently. So please do pre-planning. And then when you go out to look at the airplane, do a thorough pre-flight. Check your airplane and touch your airplane. Move your flight controls slowly and deliberately just so you could feel if there's any roughness, any, any binding in the system. Right? Just pay attention. In fact, we, we plan it on, maybe we'll do it from Oshkosh, right? Uh, doing a show about pre-flight since we'll yeah. have the airplane. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, we'll get Patty, Patty Wagstaff to do a walk around on her airplane. Yeah and show us what she looks for because she depends on that airplane 
uh, every single flight. So anyway, we're, we're going to deal with that issue and help educate everybody on what is a good pre-flight inspection, including looking at the logbook to know who touched your airplane and what they touched. So we'll touch upon all that stuff. So having said all that, please, everybody, be safe in your personal habits and fly safely. All right. See you all later. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at All Protected.